For those that are attending regularly, you'll know that over the last several weeks, we've been slowly working through the book of I the chapter Isaiah 40. That wonderful chapter where God brings this word of comfort and promise to his people that were out in exile, promising to restore, to reconnect with them. And this morning, we are continuing that journey by focusing our attention on Isaiah chapter 40, verses 18 through 25. The passage is on the screen behind me, or as always, you are invited to open up in your pew Bibles to page number 713, where the text can be read as well. Again, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 18 through 25. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He is, who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood, that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtains and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely have their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several of you know uh, my wife and several of others in this church are occupied by being a preschool teacher. She amazes me in the fact that every day she works with three-year-old children trying to teach them and encourage them. And it's interesting to hear the stories of working with them at their developmental level. One of that issues being that at the level of three years old, they don't quite understand quantities and numbers. We saw an example of that just a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Brent asked those young children to guess how many sand, uh, grains of sand he had in a jar. And we heard guesses of like 45 or an example I always love, every year my wife asks their children on Mother's Day a bunch of questions about their moms, and one of the questions is, well, how old is your mom? And the logic of a young child usually goes one of two ways when they don't know the answer to that question. One is, well, I know I'm three, and I know my mom is more than that, and so she's probably five. Or, I know I'm young, and my mom is way older than me, so I'm going to think of the biggest number I can think of. She's probably 100. But you understand how in not getting those concepts, they don't fully grasp that guess and, and how their mind can work through that. Now, before we shame our young children too much, 
Let's put ourselves in those shoes because we don't fully grasp things. If I said, I've got a million grains of rice for you, go get it a container. What are you going to grab? A can? A bucket? A wheelbarrow? Are you going to bring your pickup truck? Are you going to make sure that there's a storage container? What are you going to need to hold a million grains of rice? Now, I have to confess, I spent far more time than I should have trying to find a photograph of a million grains of rice. This is the best one that I could come up with. I know it's hard to see, but it's, uh, I think this is someone stacked piles of about maybe a thousand and laid out a million grains of rice in a room. This is what it would look like. Based on that, maybe you'd need, you know, a decent-sized wheelbarrow to contain all of that. I don't know if that was your guess, but that's what it is. But here's the idea. When we don't fully grasp quantities, volume, or, or those types of issues, it can be hard to really quantify that. To the most egregious example I recently came across of a young child, they sat a kid down at a table. And on that table, there were $10,000 in cash in $100 bills. And next to it were two opened Oreo cookies. And the child was encouraged, choose one and you'll get it. And again, the young child, not understanding value or quantities, knows that Oreo cookies taste really good. They don't know what they're going to do with these 10,000 pieces of paper and so they chose the Oreo cookies instead. And that's the point. When we, in our limited ability to grasp value, to grasp size and quantity and numerical, so often we too can exchange something of great value for something of far inferior value. If you were here last week, you will remember that the part of Isaiah 40 we were looking at was to try to figure out and to help us understand the indescribable power, might, and size of our God. And in comparing to nature and other things that we could understand, we realized that there were no comparisons. But as hard as that was... The greater difficulty we have sometimes in understanding is that idea that as great, mighty, and wonderful, and majestic as our God is, he still loves us, knows us by name, and wants to care for us and provide for us. But here's the sad reality in trying to grasp that indescribable truth. That throughout human history, particularly because we struggle to truly grasp the greatness of our God, so often we have minimized, we have compartmentalized, we have contain, tried to contain the great God into understandable parts. And that's where Isaiah goes next in his words of encouragement and challenge. Having tried to help us picture the, and get a little taste of the greatness of our God, Isaiah starts this section with the question, to whom then would you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? Now that's meant to be a ridiculous question. However, 
It's a question that has to be asked. Because in our efforts to find joy, to find comfort, to find security and direction in this chaotic and confusing world, far too often humans have turned from going to the great almighty God to something more understandable and tangible and and turned to them instead. For Israel, the main issue was idolatry. While living in the land of Israel, they were called, they were encouraged, they were covenanted with the Lord God to have a special, unique relationship with him. He was faithful to them and they were called to respond in their own faithfulness, love, service, and obedience. And and yet... Over and over and over again, instead of being faithful to the God that loved them, they pursued lesser gods. And the idols, trying to be like the the nations that surrounded them. And so Isaiah says, do you want to compare the almighty God to an idol? All right, let's do it. In verses 19 and 20 of our text, he uses the process of crafting an idol as a way to mock the worship of idols. It takes a a lot of work in order to set up a, a, a nice idol that they were going to worship. You have to collect all of the resources, which not only include things that are nearby, but some precious metals like gold and silver if you want this thing to look good. And whether you're going to make a 20-foot statue or a a human-sized statue or or a couple of inches that you're going to place in your home, it's going to cost you an awful lot of money to get that gold to surround that image and make it look like the God that you want to worship. If you don't have all of that money, then he says, well, you can just use wood. But even then, you're going to have to pay somebody who's got some artistic ability in order to shape it just right to make it look worthy of being an idol rather than some kind of arts and craft projects that you threw together. And then it's not just the, the money invested in making this, but it's the time. Again, to do this well, to do this right, you're going to have to take a lot of time and and give of that energy in order to form this thing and to put it all together. And so after I don't know how long of of planning and collecting materials and forging the, the metals and then putting it all together, finally you're able to set up your idol. And it's not going to go anywhere. As the text says, it will not move unless you move it. Unless you pick it up and carry it to the places where you want this idol to be located. It is an inanimate object. In its construction and in its use, the thing is a burden to the people that make it. It's a point that Isaiah will return to and elaborate on in a couple of other chapters soon later on in his general book. And yet, after you got the wood, after you crafted the image, after you got the precious metals, melted them, overlaid the whole image with those metals, after you set it up and it just sits there, People will look at that thing and credit it with blessing them. 
And they will sacrifice even more. They will offer their prayers. They will offer their food. They will offer their economic resources like their livestock and sacrifice. Sometimes even sacrificing their own children to this inanimate object that they themselves put together. Because they think that by doing that, this thing that you made will then bless you. It's ridiculous on its face. Just a little bit of common sense proves that. Something you make is obviously less than you. So why devote yourself to this image? And yet, how often did the people choose the Oreo cookie over the $10,000? Beyond just common sense, Isaiah reminds the people they knew better. In verse 21, he asks some more questions. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And again, those questions aren't really asked in sincerity as though Isaiah doesn't know the answer to the question. He asks them in order to force the Israelites to answer for themselves and to think through and admit that they knew about the God that had been revealed to them. That Isaiah is not pointing them to some brand new deity that they've never heard of before, but they had been told over and over again. Their teachers, their prophets had been faithful. They knew of the power of the God who created all things by speaking it into existence. They knew of the God that had made a special covenant with their forefather Abraham. They knew of the God that set up the promised land and led them to that by leading them out of slavery in Egypt into that promised land, providing for them the entire way. They knew of the God that had established the throne of David and blessed the nation under the leadership of Solomon with all kinds of riches and greatness and how God had been faithful to his promises over and over again. They knew better. The God, this God, instead of being a tiny image that can't move, is the complete opposite. Instead of being something that humans can hold in their hand, the text says that God looks at us like grasshoppers. Instead of being an object crafted by humanity, God sits above the circle of the earth and stretches out the heavens like a tent. Instead of depending on humans to move and to be located in certain places in order to work like an idol, the true God brings nations to nothing. In verse 24, once again, we get a reminder of just how feeble we are in the hands of God. Scarcely do humans take their root on the earth that God just knocks them down with his breath. Even the greatest of human achievements wither in his mighty presence. And so when you compare or, or try to do the ridiculous thing of comparing the one true God of power that created and sustained all things with the supposed power of an idol that you had to create and that can do nothing on its own, there's absolutely no comparison. And so this part of the text ends with the question once again, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One.
when looking at and thinking about the idols and the images Israel was tempted to pursue in their day, the foolishness of idolatry is abundantly clear and obvious to us. And it can be rather tempting to easily just shake our heads at the ignorance and wonder how in the world they could possibly do that, waste their time, waste their money, waste their energy, and give credit to the very thing that they themselves created. And yet as we shake our heads, let's now add to our understanding of the greatness of our gods, of all of the things that we know about him compared to what they knew. We have seen more promise of God fulfilled, both in sending the people to exile, restoring them, but most importantly in the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. How he was born in Bethlehem just like the prophets said he would be. How through his teaching he taught with authority and power that the people could not understand. How through his miracles he proved a power that he had that no other human being had, including the power to forgive sins. A power that he took with him to the cross when he gave his body and shed his blood so that your sins could be forgiven, erased from the memory of God, and you would never receive the judgment for those sins as you deserve, but he would bear that judgment for himself. And then after rising from the grave of his own power and ascending to heaven with the declaration that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he sent his Holy Spirit to be our guide, to point us, to encourage us to go and build his kingdom and to live for him as his servants to, should be. So many of us know, so many of us have been taught so clearly of the incredible goodness and the love of Jesus Christ. And yet, Isaiah's question remains for us. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares to him? Because the reality is that while we may not make images that look like the idols of ancient days, we have the very same problem. That instead of looking to the one true great God for all of the things that we need and want in this life, we have far too often turned our hearts to lesser things, asking them to do for us what only God can truly do. Yes, there is clear foolishness. There is clear foolishness in spending your money to craft an image or something and, and then look to it, pray to it, sacrifice to that image, asking it to bless you. But there is also such clear foolishness in all of our idols as well. I'm deviating here from a bit of my manuscript because I'll confess I struggled with this part of bringing this thing home. In what I prepared, I've got maybe three examples of regular idols that we are drawn toward. Things that I know some of you struggle with, things that I myself admittedly struggle with as well. But instead of just giving a few examples and hoping it connects with some of you, we all need to examine our lives and say, what are those things that we have turned into idols?
How would we know? And here's how you answer some of those questions. As often as we, for example, as was done in the children's message, say, with all of the things we've got going on in our lives, I've got no time for devotions. I can't make it to church because we were so busy on Saturday night. I can't join a, a small group or spend time reading my Bible. I'm just too busy. Well, what are those things that we've given too much of our time to? And what are we asking of those things? That when we want a little bit of relief from the stress of this life, where do we turn? When we are anxious and we need some comfort and some direction, where do you go? When you're worried and desperate or, or when you have something to celebrate, what do you most often turn to that isn't God? And again, we all have those answers. We all have those things we struggle with. And if you don't know what yours is, well, think of something that if someone told you you have to cut that out of your life, you would really struggle in giving that up because you love it so desperately. That often is a really good clue. But the reality is, in our arrogance, we can say, in my 20 years of life, in my 40 years of life, in my 60 or 80 years of life, I know so much better of what I should be doing than looking to God's word for direction. And over and over again, we make a very similar choice to a child that's got $10,000 or Oreo cookies in front of them. We say, I know this will give me temporary pleasure and joy, so I'm going to turn to that thing rather than turn to the God who says, I alone can give you comfort. I have revealed myself so that you have direction and hope for your life. And when you conform your life to my teachings, as hard as that might seem as time, I promise you, your life will go better. Because I created you. I know you. And I redeemed you through the blood of my son. And I invite you into a better walk than you could imagine than anything else would provide. I don't know what those things are for you. I do know what the things are that I struggle with and need to really evaluate. And it's hard to do that at times. But here's the bottom line point. As great as our God is, and incomprehensible as he can be, there is nothing that compares to him. So don't cling to these worthless things of this life. Cling to the Lord God, serve him and him alone, because there is the path toward blessings. And forsake all of those other idols that call and pull us toward them. With that as our hope, let's turn to that God of guidance in a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we confess that in our limited human understanding, we cannot grasp the greatness of who you are. And yet because of that, we also confess that far too often we have diminished you. We have minimized you. We have 
minimized your holiness and your righteousness. We assume that forgiveness is easy. But then we remember the cost of your son. Lord, may we truly forsake the dearest idols we have known, whatever that idol may be. And as we contemplate your greatness, may it drive us once again to serve you in all that we are, living for you under the umbrella of your guiding hand and your gracious love. Lord, may we truly be your servants in this world. This we pray, and we do so in Jesus' holy name. Amen.